Good morning, church family. It's my delight and privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. We turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 34, and I remind you that we are at a point in the history of Israel where they have been brought out of Egypt by God's mighty hand, by His outstretched arm, that they have been brought through the Red Sea, that Moses has gone up to the mountain to receive that revelation of God, and that they, while he was up on the mountain, had said to Aaron, make us gods that we may worship, that they worship the golden calf, that God was ready to destroy them, and that Moses interceding pleads on their behalf, that God relents because of his grace, and that God responds graciously to them and says that he will indeed be with them. And Moses, remember, has the audacity then to ask God, show me your glory. And God graciously shows him not the fullness of his glory, the face as it were, but Rather, the backside. And yet, what a glorious revelation. The Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And Moses then continues his plea. Lord, you yourself go with us. And God says, yes, I will. We begin in verse 9 of chapter 34. Here is that request. And Moses said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And God said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all people I will do marvels, such as has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do for you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And you are invited and eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons. And their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, 
all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey. You shall redeem with a lamb, or if not, you will break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So far, reading of God's holy words. Being a grandfather is a wonderful thing, and sometimes you find out there are things you have to do, like watch movies with your grandchildren because they're excited about it. So a few weeks ago, when I was with one of my granddaughters, she wanted to watch Panda Red. I'd never heard of it before, but it's about this 13-year-old girl, uh, Mimi, who is growing up and wrestling with independence and allegiances. And in that movie, there is a context where her family is the keeper of a temple in Toronto, Ontario. And at one point, the mother explains to visitors and is with her daughter and says, some people honor a god. We honor our ancestors. And that struck me. Here you have an understanding, a view of the whole world, that they had the opportunity to choose who they would worship who they would look for, for guidance, for blessing, for prosperity. And they had decided their ancestors would be the ones. And what a contrast to our text, where the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, enters into relationship, into covenant with the Israelites with his people whom he had drawn out of Egypt and was establishing them as his people that they might know him as their God. We want to think about that this morning. We'll do that considering the God of the covenant as well as the people of the covenant, those two who are brought together by God in this relationship, in this covenant. And you have then the God of the covenant. And we have seen something of his character already. That God had revealed himself to Moses as a God full of grace, 
forgiving sins, iniquity, transgression. That here is God who reveals his heart towards his people. But if you were thinking about that and you think in our text, what we read, there might be something that you would say, well, how does this fit in? Verse 14, as we read, there you shall worship no other God, for the Lord your God is, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And you think, now wait a minute, how does that fit together with the God of grace, of love? When we think about jealous, would you say to your kids, well, I'm glad that you're jealous. <laughs> no, we say, you can't be jealous. We think of that in negative terms. We think of that as being rooted in greed and discontent and so that people are envious. But this is not how the scripture means to communicate. Rather, this word in the original Hebrew is also translated as zealous. And there we see there is a different connotation that somebody who has zeal for something has an affection for something. One definition of zeal is an intense emotion compelling to action. And this is the idea that is behind God being jealous. We may think of other terms even as we use the word jealous. In history, looking back sometimes, we, we see the founding fathers of the United States. They were jealous for their independence. It was something desirable. It was something good, and they were vigilant about it. And God is a zealous God. He is one who has this perfect, intense emotion for his people that compels him to action. We see this in other places in Scripture. Elijah, who was the one prophet, faithful to God, who would oppose 400 prophets of Baal, who would call down fire from heaven. And how does he describe himself after he is on the run for his life a day later? He says, I, am, I have been zealous for the Lord God. His zeal, his desire to see Israel worship the true God and turn away from these false prophets. His zeal. Or you may think of the wonderful promise in Isaiah 9, where there is the promise of the son, the child that would be given, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And it goes on to speak about the increase of his government, the promised Messiah, Jesus. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. There's the understanding of zeal. And if you want another illustration, you parents who have perhaps toddlers, or you think back when you had toddlers, 
you're in the front yard and somebody says, look, your child is in the middle of the road. And, and what do you do? You, you turn to your spouse and you say, well, I hope that they don't get hurt. No, you say, uh, you run there as fast as you can. There is a zeal. Your care for your child doesn't let you remain idle, but you are pursuing them, desiring them. And this is the zeal of God. This is why he is described as jealous. And he desires his people's hearts, his people's affection. He is not content with a relationship where he says, I'll do this for you, you do that for me. God says, I want you. I want all of you. The Old Testament has lots of laws and regulations. But when it is summed up, how is it summed up? When Jesus is asked about the great commandment, what does he respond? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, mind, and strength. Is Jesus finally explaining what the Old Testament means? No, he is quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, that says exactly that. The Old Testament was about people responding with their hearts, with all of their being. And we need to see that God, though He is gracious and compassionate, He is zealous. He will not be content with half your heart. And when God reveals himself in Jesus Christ, God incarnate, we think of Jesus, and we think of him gracious and compassionate, who invites people to himself that they might find rest for their souls. Many in the congregation are reading through the book Gentle and Lowly. Here is Jesus revealing his heart. And yet Jesus, too, is zealous for the affections of his disciples. He says to his disciples, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The denial of self, the understanding that Jesus is worthy of all our affection, of all our devotion, of all of our worship. Jesus says it even more strongly in another place, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. Jesus is explaining, I need to be more important than anyone or anything else. Here is the God of the covenant who shows his heart, his love, his kindness, but who desires a people for himself, devoted to him, 
And God will do a glorious work for them. He will exercise His power. Remember, zeal is not just a feeling. It's compelling action. And what will God do? He will settle His people in the land He has promised to them. As He had promised it to Abraham 400 years earlier. And now He is going to fulfill that promise. And what is He going to do? He is going to drive out the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Those people who in their wickedness served all the false gods, God is going to remove them and give the promised land to the Israelites. Here is a glorious work, an awesome work. The King James uses the term a terrible work that would bring terror into the hearts of those enemies of God. Here, God exercises that power for His people. And what of the people of the covenant? The covenant brings God and His people together. God has delivered them, He has brought them, and now they are at the foot of the mountain. And God says, here is how we are going to relate to each other. And it's not a business transaction. God is going to be in their midst. His glory and the holy of holies and the people surrounding it. Dwelling with God in their midst. And he desires their heart. The desires of his people are to be for God. Not for the blessings that God will give them, but for God himself, the giver of all blessings. And like Moses, there was a danger. Because Moses was not perfected. Moses was not glorified. Moses yet had sin within him. And therefore he could not see the face of God. And so the Israelites, there was dangers for them. And the danger lay in what they were entering into. They were to dispossess the nations. But the danger of compromise leading to capitulation. The danger of compromise. Therefore, God warns them. He warns them of this danger. And he gives them instruction that they are not to enter into covenant with them. And all of the ways in which they engaged in their worship of false gods, they were to destroy. You think of how God didn't say, well, look at those nice works of art. Let's preserve them all. He said, they could become a snare to you, and therefore you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. All the aspects of false worship were to be destroyed, that they would not be the temptation, the snare to the people of Israel. We think, well, was this just for them? We don't go around bashing idols and altars anymore today. But we recognize that as 
then, so now, it is first of all a matter of the heart. And what kind of altars do we find in our culture? Altars on which sacrifices are made. We may see the altar of convenience on which the unborn are sacrificed. We may see the altar of political correctness in which the truth is sacrificed for an ideology. We may see the altar of achievement on which the means are sacrificed for the end. That these things for convenience, for power, that they demand sacrifices of those things that God has said are unrighteous, are unholy. And we see the danger even within the church where we can exalt men, where we can exalt a theology. And this again is not something new in the church. When Paul wrote to the Church in Corinth, he wrote, now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. All these divisions, because they were exalting one man or another that they were following. Do we not sometimes see the same today? Where people will say, look at that church, it's a mega church, look at that pastor, look at his persuasive power, and they follow him. And then you find out, years or a decade later, that they have fallen. That their desire for power, authority, greed, immorality is exposed and the church is disgraced. And we are reminded that there is only one who is to have our hearts, our full allegiance, and that is Jesus Christ and him alone. Or we may follow a theology. I'm a Calvinist. I'm an Arminian. I'm a liberal theologist. I, whatever terms we use, we must guard ourselves. Does God have our hearts? All of them. That we may see his glory. That we may see his grace and his mercy. And the compromise that we must resist, that we must destroy every altar that we find in society that, that can creep into our own hearts. Because that compromise can lead to capitulation. We see the danger further expressed here in that relationship of marriage of sons being taken for daughters, of daughters being given to sons outside the covenant. What is the great danger there? It is not that all the pagans will be one to worship the true God. No, it is the other direction. You have only to look in the history, in the Old Testament, to see the reality of that. In the book of Judges, what happened over and over again, rather than driving out the people they lived with them. They began to intermarry with them. 
They compromised, and they began to worship the false gods. You think of other times in the Old Testament. Even Solomon, for all his wisdom, what do we read about him? That he married many women, and they led him astray to worship false gods. He made temples for the gods of his wives. We think even after the people of Israel have been brought back from the captivity in Babylon, Ezra and Nehemiah, what was the great danger then? They were again intermarrying with the nations around them. And God warns them that they must not compromise, that they must not capitulate. And so we are not surprised that in the New Testament, there is the same instruction when the Apostle Paul writes to those who become widows. They're free to remarry, he says, in the Lord. Marriage is to be an institution rooted in Jesus. Husband and wife joined together in faith and belief. Because of the great danger, because of the capitulation that can occur. We think of the desire of God for the hearts of his people. And we are to be guarding our own hearts to understand that in our culture there are many circumstances, many dangers that we must be aware of. We live in the culture, but we are not to be a part of it. We live in the world, but are not to be a part of it. We think of areas such as entertainment that can and many times does exalt wickedness, that assumes things contrary to the truth of God's word. And how much do we allow ourselves to consume? How much are we influenced by it? We may think of political power. Do we think the church should be standing up in politics, becoming another voice? Or does it maintain the gospel focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and his claims? Seeking the transformation of hearts and not of political parties. We think of personal expression where people say, don't call me he or she anymore. I want to be they or it or whatever of their gender, and you think some people might want to have a gender reveal party every week. And we think, no, the truth of God stands. And we cannot begin to compromise. And that doesn't mean we don't love those who are sinners. We should know what sinners are like. We were all sinners. We still sin. And sinners sin, and we should not be surprised that the world sins and accepts things that are unbiblical. No, we have to love them, but we know that the answer is not to accept them as they are, but to present to them the hope, the glory of the grace of God to transform sinners into saints, to give them 
new life, new orientation that their hearts would be oriented towards God. And we are to guard that in our own lives and in the church. To have that balance between our love and compassion for people and the truth. That we do not begin to say, well, God is love and therefore come as you are and remain as you are. No. God is love, but he desires your heart and therefore he desires holiness. That there might be that fellowship. That there might be that union with Christ Jesus. And that we may know that encouragement. Now, as we look at the text, and we're not going to go over all the details, you, you look at it and you think, well, what are all these regulations in here? All these times, the, the feast of unleavened bread, um, of eating unleavened bread, and, and of devoting the, the firstborn, and it goes on and, and working six days, and observing the feast of weeks and the feast of harvest, all these things, you think, what does that have to do with us? But you see, God was giving his people reminders that in the Passover, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they would remember, they would recall that God had established them by his power, by his mercy as his people. Here was the remembrance. And as the church, we have many things that God gives us as remembrances as well. We have the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted at Passover. There is no longer the slaughter of a lamb, the reminder through that blood, but now communion with the bread and wine representing the sign and the seal of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, that we have communion with him, that we partake in him, and therefore are encouraged to remember that God is our God, and we are his through Jesus Christ. We are given the Lord's day, one day in seven, the New Testament reminds us not to neglect gathering together, to encourage one another, to build one another up. Here is the encouragement that we have. We think of that devotion, the dedication of the firstborn, of the first fruits. And we may think of baptism. We are devoting ourselves to God. Here is a sign and seal of the righteousness, the cleansing that is ours through the blood of Jesus Christ, that here is the reminder that we may think on and reflect on of what God has done for us in his Son. All these reminders. And as we turn aside from the things of the world, the things that are unrighteous, the things that are unholy, we are reminded that we have fellowship with a holy God that is through Jesus Christ, and he gives us these reminders, and we are to encourage one another, to remind each other of what God has done for us. As we think about our lives, 
redeemed by Christ. That we then go in the power of Jesus to live for him. And there is therefore an element of warfare in our Christian lives. The Israelites were to go and to conquer the land. God had said, it's yours. I'm driving them out, and I'm using you to do that. And so in our lives, what do we do? We, we see that we are engaged in a warfare against Satan and all his hosts. That we are fighting against wickedness. And that we are doing so in the power of Jesus. And it makes our lives significant. We are doing things that the world may despise and think count for nothing, but they are of eternal significance to God. And we think of how Paul writes to the church in Corinth that had many gifts and many problems and many struggles, and yet he, he reminds them the weapons of our warfare as we are fighting against wickedness are not carnal or worldly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Does it sound like an echo of our text? Destroying the altars, the ashram, the high places? It is. It's not physical, but it's the same idea, those things that exalt themselves against God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. Think of the scope of that. Not just Sunday mornings when I'm in worship and I think about Jesus. Every thought. Because he has my heart, my devotion, I think about all my decisions all week long. Is this thought? Is this decision? Is this action in captivity to Jesus Christ? Does it honor Him? Does it serve Him? Does it proclaim my trust in Him? And we see the challenge that we have in our Christian's life. But we have the power of God. We have the presence of God and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us that we may serve Him, that we may love Him, that we may be devoted to Him, that as we live in this covenant with our God, that we see and know that communion, that relationship, that He is my God, and I am his. That, that he is working in me and through me to bring me into him, to himself that I may one day see him, not as Moses did, the, the back parts, but to see him face to face in the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And that's how our lives as Christians are to be lived. And so the question comes, where is the devotion of your heart? If you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not said, 
I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. It is Jesus who says, come to me. Trust in me. Follow me. Leave all else. And I will give you rest. I will save you. I will give you all that is needed that you may enjoy a heavenly Father forever. And as Christians, we say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Show me my kind and loving Savior who is worthy of all my affection, of all my love, because of his love to me.